people are struggling to have conversations and connect with others that they don't completely agree with on every topic and I think that's probably the biggest problem that we need to try and solve is how after all this division and after all the separation do we end up bringing people together again and what does unity really look like? New Zealand faces some pretty big issues. First one is COVID in the aftermath. There's no getting away from that. Second is racial division. It's been ginned up and it's dangerous. Another issue that maybe people haven't got their head around yet is digital currency. What form does that take? Is it programmable? Will it be used to manipulate behavior and patterns of behavior? Those questions need to be asked and answered. How can you have fair, open, democratic government by people who are appointed? It's a ridiculous idea. And if that idea is taken to its zenith, then this country is in real trouble because democracy, one person, one vote, where every vote is of equal value, has got to be the foundation of a modern New Zealand. What's true, what's not true, how our kids are to be educated. And, you know, I have a great fear for the future. I think we know from history where this could end up. You with Reality Check Radio here with Marie and Marty. This is Media Matters, where we take a glance over the news stories of the week, what has been talked about, and particularly have a look at it from a cultural lens. And I have to say, Marty, good morning. There's always plenty to talk about. There's no shortage of things to talk about. Good morning, Marie. Yes, thanks. No. No shortage whatsoever. Uh, the fallout from the Posey Parker incident is still going strong. The Spectator in the UK has done a number of follow-up stories on the Parker incident here in Auckland uh, the week week and a half ago now. And it does not paint New Zealand in a very, very positive light. Um, it's, it's still just beggar's belief. And I think now... You you had the week you bought the weekend papers. The uh, tomato juice thrower has yes. now come out. So what have you got in the? I just found that quite fascinating. Um, the victimhood that they're claiming over the entire incident uh, is just yeah. Just she's she's claiming it's genocide, which is drawing a rather long bow. I would have thought. And it, it's it is always interesting to hear the proponents of this counter uh, counter protest. Uh, justify what they're doing. Uh, and so what she said was, and I won't misgender it, what she said was, uh, Rubashkin re- believed, someone like me, I have no way to get protection from discrimination in this country, New Zealand, obviously false, but um, she, she said, my critics say I attack freedom of speech. You cannot erase people's existence. You cannot evade someone's humanity. That's not up for debate. And I don't think we are debating that. I, I don't think that's the debate at all. No, it, it's, I mean, the entire event was let women speak. It was an event mm. where women were able to express their concerns about what was going on in the day. And I, it's this continual, this continual claim, staking the claim of who was the greater victim, which I just, wonder how long people will sort of tolerate that for and it's particularly when she is the one that has been quite clearly seen throwing the tomato juice and 
uh, I saw a piece, I think she went on live on Instagram and she was bemoaning the fact, the irony, are you ready? Ironic yeah, eye roll. She was bemoaning the fact that uh, she felt concerned for her safety and that she wasn't receiving adequate protection from the police. Yeah, the irony. The irony. Place, right time, I guess. Well, and also too, following that week, I think because there was, I think what they didn't expect was such a negative backlash from international media. I think that that was quite unexpected, uh, particularly by those in the media here. I think the the general outrage by the public was not something that I think that they had expected when they were in your own, when you're in your own echo chamber. You know, you and, and we mm. all. I think we're all guilty of this. When you live in, a, you know, in a space around voices that are supportive and affirming of your own views, you then therefore believe that everybody has the same views as you. So I think the fact that they received such a backlash from people, just everyday Kiwis who just go about their lives, who are you know seeing what's going on, not aware of the cultural uh, indications with anything, and think, oh gosh, this is you know this is not cricket. Um, that was one thing they underestimated. So I think there's been this overcompensation this week with uh, Rubaskin's side of the story, but also the um, uh, the brouhaha and fanfare made of Chanel Lal's winning of the Young New Zealander of the Year, yeah. which for me just is so appallingly timed. And just it's it is almost like, have you not read the room? I remember hearing uh, hearing a YouTuber, Owen Benjamin, is uh, a comedian, say uh, that he thought the people running the show, essentially, the media and the narrative, are like really, really good jazz musicians. They're always improvising. So if they've gone too far, they'll pull it back. And if they think there's more space, they'll hit the gas. It's, it's a dynamic thing. And it's designed to demoralise. It's designed to wear things away. I don't know whether you caught the interview with Scott earlier, but with uh, one of the things that Scott talked about, and so this is Scott Nugent, who is the campaigner against the medical transition in children, and he talked about the money attached mm. to this. He's it's literally he said this is a industry, um, and and it, so the, look the entire. Uh, what I am seeing is that we are seeing this like pushback from the media trying to soften the negative impacts created by those who have been so appalled with what happened in Auckland with the Parker incident. And also to the comments, Marta Davidson's comments, I really, you know, she, I just find it so amazing that she has been pretty much let off scot-free with that. The, um, Hipkins asked her to reframe her comments, mm, yeah. uh, which she did when really, to be honest with you, there are people that have done vastly worse things uh, that have left cabinet and she's still there. I just thought that was awful. And Simon O'Connor, uh, love him or hate him, National Party MP, he's not afraid of having an opinion or two. Yeah, good. Yeah, yeah, he's certainly, uh, he's known for his impassioned speeches in the House, uh, but he was forced to apologise after his comments in Parliament, linking the mistake. U.S. shooting, yeah, um, the U.S. shooting um, to co-green, um, green, sorry, Green co-leader yeah. Marama Davidson's comments about cis white men. Mm. Now, 
Oh, there was two things that one golden rule number one of all things woke don't apologize do not apologize <laughs> if you say something stand by it don't apologize so whether or not that that was Luxon, i don't know but also to the fact that he made those comments in parliament i thought what was said in the house was sacrosanct you you know you could say those things in the house without fear or favor so the fact that he's now actually having to apologize for something said in the house i think again is starting to sort of set different boundaries Mm. Um, but O'Connor apparently rose to speak on Tuesday night during the reading, this is last Tuesday, the reading of one of the government's gang-focused crime bills. Um, and he said, Mr. Speaker, I want to start by acknowledging the Christian community actually in Nashville. He said three children and three adults are dead in the shooter. And I just assure that, and just to assure the community long prosecuted that they're, that they're in our prayers. So I'd also discuss this morning is that it's about the kids. It's about protecting the kids. He said, what anybody wants to do when they're an adult is entirely up to them. Mm. He's angry because he was not given complete and full informed consent. So he said that they you know, he, and he got sucked into to the ideology and the gender, the whole cult of gender affirmation. So he said there is no, um, no one, you know, ever gets you to sort of critically think about the decision, the life altering decision that you're about to make. He said the fact that he found that difficult, as difficult as it was when he transitioned in his 40s, he said, imagine that they're now applying that to children who are from primary school age onwards. So, you know, that's exactly, that's just it. If someone so genuinely wants to make that uh, decision uh, and have and take undertake transition, which is not for the faint of heart, um, as an adult, fill your boots by all means. But yeah, it is, it's protecting protecting the kids. The the interesting thing about this article with O'Connor and Luxon was, you know, I mean, I so wish we had Luxon was stronger in opposition. I really genuinely do. Um, he's sitting here saying that it's the important thing is he recognised that the comments were insensitive, talking about O'Connor, and that he didn't want to cause offence to anyone, and he genuinely made a heartfelt apology. Luxon says, now. I'm sorry. I just do. We ha every time somebody cries offence, you know, why do you have to apologise? It's like, sorry, madam, are you offended? But this is my belief. Why is that not okay anymore? I just it, it, something that knocks my knickers. To be fair, well, you could flick it around and say the reason you do that is because you don't really have principles. I don't think anyone could accuse Christopher Luxon of being. Uh, a principled uh, a, a conviction politician. Mm. I, you've, you've worked in the corporate environment. I've worked in corporate environments. They weed out creative people. At the top of the hierarchy, you, you tend to have people that uh, don't have a lot of creativity. And no. uh, I've met a lot of Christopher Luxons. Yes. That, that, that they're very pragmatic, disagreeable um and uh, they they do what needs to be done. Now, education. I know that this is a hot-button topic for you. You had a piece on education this morning that you'd like to bring to the forum. Well, this this morning I, uh, I went to have a look at uh, putting my middle child in a private school, shifting him out of uh, an open-plan school where he's kind of getting a bit lost. He's only seven. 
um, and he's got 105 kids in his class. Oh. And um, so, yeah, I, I listened. I've listened to a few really good Oliver Hartwich interviews lately, and, and he says a lot of what the New Zealand Initiative concentrates on is is education because they see it as the source of so many of New Zealand's present and future problems. Um, and uh, we're at a state now where, as you said, I, I in preparation I decided I'd read the news, the Weekend Herald. Uh, and uh, the first inside page, that's not a full page ad, was a, um, a, a an article about uh, a transition period for the new NCEA numeracy and literacy tests. Uh, and they're showing that about 54% of ch- students failed the writing and so would not be eligible for a qualification. Uh, and so what Oliver Hartwich is saying is the education system is in crisis and we're not acting like it's a crisis. And yeah, um, Because to admit that it's a crisis is to admit that all of that policy that you have been trying to push through has yeah. failed. Well, just, just as an example, the open plan class system, he, he mentioned specifically, and he, he asked uh, someone in the ministry, where did that come from? And where it came from was someone saw a TED talk where someone said it was a good idea. And in a follow-up, I presume it was an OIA, he asked, um, have you reviewed its the, the efficacy of this system? And they hadn't. No. So it's it's very much fire and forget. And, and that's the difference between the public sector and the private sector. In, in the public sector, uh, policy determines the outcome and in the public in the private sector it tends to be the other way around you alter what you're doing if if what you're doing isn't working whereas in the public sector they decide what they're going to do and implement it which is where things are going very badly wrong and and I guess why they jumped so hard on charter schools which were showing signs of of uh, success and, and I guess as I was reading this article in, in the New Zealand Herald, I was just struck by, and I've written quite a few of, of these kind of articles where your paper is a hungry thing, so you've got to fill it and you get press releases and you knock them into shape. And if you're not that ethical, you stick your name on them. Yeah. But I was reading the second paragraph and it said, Results of the second trial of the co-requisite remained poor with a decline in the number of students passing reading and a slight increase in writing and numeracy. Now, even before you look at, well, how do you get better at writing and at the same time get worse at reading? I mean, who knows what a co-requisite is? I have to look it up. Mm. Uh, it's, it's very much jargon that comes out of some ministry and, uh, a, a thought I had reading this was that we, we, we uh, there was Andrew Breitbart, the late Andrew Breitbart said, politics is, is always downstream from culture. And it occurred to me that what the Davos group and, and their middle managers like Hipkins and Ardern have decided is it's no good with politics being downstream from culture. Politics has got to get upstream from culture. So much in the same way as, as the Marxists decided, well, 
you know, when we take ownership of all industry, it fails because it doesn't work. We'll go downstream and just take the tax out of private. And and it seems that they've done the other, they've gone the other way around where they're controlling the message in the hope that culture forms downstream from the message. Mm. It's uh, It's incredibly cynical. Well, and it is also that argument between the between chicken and the egg, and you know where things sit. It, oh, the education one. I know Rodney Hyde has talked about this a lot with his kids being of a similar age to yours, and the stuff that they come home from school with, and the concern. And I know that looking at some of the things that um, with with my two children and the open classroom scenario was definitely one that I know with our oldest son, the school, uh, one of the schools we looked to put him in had that open classroom. And I just said to them straight away, well, you know, this is not going to work for him at all. I mean, mm. he's got um, the alphabet soup, you know, ASD, ADHD, sensory processing. I mean, if you've got a child that has got any of these, particularly boys, because 75% of these learning difficulties sit with boys. Um, The minute you increase noise, uh, visual stimulus, distraction, all of those sorts of things, that their ability to concentrate on any message at school is is really, really hampered. So fortunately... uh, As evidenced by the fact that 50%... And it's pretty stable globally. 50% more females than males go on to tertiary education. Mm. And if it were the other way around, it would be a terrible crisis that was a sign that the patriarchy hated women. Uh, as it is, it, 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 any response I see tends to be, well, it's about time and we sort of need that to redress the imbalance. But yeah, it's, it's if you've actually got children, seeing them failed by the education system is uh, is heartbreaking. Yeah, yeah. Particularly when they've got potential that's going untapped. And as a country, we've got to start caring about that more. Yeah. yeah. Um, speaking of uh, epic fails, <laughs> did you catch the epic fail from our dear leader the other day? Oh, uh, uh, about not knowing what a woman. Uh, yeah, well, that's I have to say in Chris Hipkins' defense, for redheaded men, that's often a problem. This is sample size might not have been that high. <laughs> well, let's just see if for those who haven't caught up with it, let's just see what he had to say. Um, I just wanted to ask you uh, written comments by Keir Starmer in Britain. How do you and how does this government define a woman? Um, <laughs> I, to be honest, Sean, that's, that, that question's come slightly out of left field for, for me. Um, the, well, biology, sex, gender, um, people define themselves, people define their own genders. Yes, Garner has said that he believes 99.9% of women do not have penises. And I know it's a strange thing for him to say, but given recent events in New Zealand, I'd ask again, how do you define what a woman is? Well, as I've, I, I think as I've just indicated, I wasn't expecting that question, so it's not something that I've, um, you know, formulated, pre-formulated an answer on. But um, in terms of gender identity, I think people define their gender identity for themselves. 
not something that I'd pre-formulated an answer on. Yeah, man. You could have driven a, a freight train through that pause. Yeah, it was telling, wasn't it? I'd, I'd really like a bit more diversity in New Zealand's parliament. You know, don't, <laughs> well, intelligence, like, you mean? I'm just men who don't speak in, in an effeminate way. Just even if there were just five or six men who, who didn't sound that way, it, I think it would just add a bit more diversity and, and diversity, it helps. Mm. Well, the one person in all of that I felt very sorry for was Mrs. Sipkins. Because obviously he's quite confused about who he's married to. Really, I don't think he, I don't think he's married to her anymore. Oh, there you yeah, go. Get, get with it, Marie. Oh, I know. I'm so behind. I'm so behind. But yeah, I just uh, that I just found that is something that I haven't had an opportunity to, you know, pre pre prepare for. It's just ugh. yeah. Anyway, those those new women are so much better. Aren't they? The, <laughs> Than the old-fashioned ones. <laughs> oh, insane! Now, actually, with all of this, I mean, people there must be people sitting at home thinking, you know, the gods must be crazy. And I, I'm expecting in the next lot of immigration figures that we're going to see a bit of an exodus with people leaving the country again, akin to what we saw in the 1990s. And an article that jumped out in the, uh, again in the last couple of days is nearly 5,000 New Zealand nurses have registered to work in Oz since August. Nearly 5,000 New Zealand workers um, have done the registration. It shows the extent of the crossing or plan to cross the ditch, often to take up lucrative short-term contracts of up to eight and a half thousand dollars a week. Yeah, I mean, and I think the um, the manager of the Ministry of Health, or it has a new name, which I haven't memorised yet. To Fatu Water. Yeah, said, said she couldn't blame uh, nurses who took up those opportunities. But each of those, was it 5,000 or 8,000? 5,000 have Each of those 5,000 nurses, if you think about the number of interactions that a nurse has with people in a single day, the effect on New Zealand society of that absence is, is, is unthinkable. Oh, absolutely. And, the, and actually, to follow that up, oh, here we go, just pull it up when I find it, now that I've... To follow that up, I got an email last night with a news article uh, from your old uh, public. Good old Winsley Wrigley. Yeah, I think I did flick this to you, didn't I? Yep, and I read that. Yeah, and that is from the Gisborne Herald. Gisborne Hospital short of 41 nurses and 28 doctors. Now, if you... Uh, this is a hospital that services the, the wider community of around 45,000 people. Is that right? In, in the catchment? 45, uh, 50, yeah. Yeah, 45, 50,000 people. So we're not talking a lot. I mean, it's a larger geographic area, but in terms of population, relatively low. 41 nurses and 28 doctors is huge. Yeah, that that's that is that's going to have um, some terrible terrible knock-on effects and, and, and this, I mean I, I, I've actually worked uh, writing ads to um, attract doctors and nurses to Gisborne so uh, it, it's quite challenging as it is and it sounds like it's getting more challenging. It's Exactly um, doctor shortages consist of 10 vacancies for resident medical officers and 18 for senior medical officers. 
Yeah. 18 senior medical officers, SMOs, and that's even before, and I mean, that even, and that would probably include consultants, I would have thought. Yeah, you can picture a, a rope snapping and, and those missing staff being the snapped strands of the rope. The rope's not getting any stronger as those strands are, uh, are snapping. Yeah. Uh, so it's it's horrifying to think what what the uh, the the final failures could look like in terms of uh, health outcomes for people on the east coast. Oh, it is it is utterly terrifying. And for those, um, and this is the thing. This is a this is a small provincial hospital. So the uh, tertiary care within a hospital like Gisborne Hospital is. Is, is minor so that you've got some general surgical you um the consultants are fairly thin on the ground they'll have um sort of the main the mainstays of that you know a few orthopods uh, i know that they only have one senior ophthalmologist there and they sometimes will bring in uh others will sometimes come in and out um on locums you've got i think maybe one or two gynecologists if you're lucky at any given time and then that is it. Anything, there's no cardiology. All cardiology goes to Waikato. Yep. And we all know how swamped they are. Uh, and those, so the doctors and nurses that are in hospitals like Gisborne, and this will not only be affecting Gisborne, it'll be affecting hospitals like the Wairarapa and um, Mul Nelson Marlborough, all of those hospitals of that size that require, uh, require filtration back to a tertiary referral center will be suffering these sorts of shortages and that in the doctors and nurses that tend to work in these hospitals they are highly highly skilled because they're used to working remotely without having someone higher up the food chain automatically available to be there for them mm. so the level of care when so what that then means is that you are dealing with staff who are burnt out under-resourced, don't have what it is, the weights to get in or the ability to be seen is extended. So then, therefore, people sit and fester at home. They present late. late. And, and that just then knocks the problem down, kicks the can down the road to those tertiary referral centres like Waikato, which is absolutely bursting at the seams. So the, the whole thing is, it is a shit show from start to finish, really. And people yeah, wonder... I mean, there's other facets to it as well. I mean, if if you look at the way a house surgeon used to work, my father was one at one point, um, they worked stupid hours. And his explanation always was, well, we got a free education. We felt we owed something uh, to uh, the country. And um, as I said, having been involved in, in the employing of other doctors, they don't have that that same you know as, as a child of one it's not a healthy work ethic at all no uh, but um it, it kept the health system together and it's not there anymore no no it's not um, so you've got fewer doctors and the ones that are there aren't willing to work the the crazy stupid hours yeah, the um, it says here the system is falling apart and no one is listening, says Miss Warrender, which is from the, I think, a nurse's representative from the hospital. We don't know what the answer is. 
And that is one of the, in terms of fixing this problem, and I'm sure that this is not the only hospital that says that, but further down this article, and I have to credit Winsley for putting this in here, bless his wee heart, we both know Winsley. Mm-hmm. Um, he says here in the final passage, unvaccinated staff were not being employed, she said. Ms. Bartlett said to Whara Order Health New Zealand has recently completed an internal consultation on an organisation-wide vaccination policy, and this was to be finalised. And for me, that is one of the elephants in the room, to be brutally honest with you. There are still a significant number of staff out there uh, who would probably want to go back to work. Mind you, it's for many of them now. It's been sort of, it'll, it'll be 18 months since they were in the workforce and they've moved on. So even that pool of staff, and it's not just doctors and nurses, it is also support staff, it is anybody that works under that Whata Ora umbrella, that is a chunk of people that have left the medical workforce. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I know uh, a, a few really competent ED nurses, highly skilled, um, experienced nurses, and um, they're cleaning houses. Yeah. Because they they weren't uh, able to keep working. And I think um, having seen the mask come off and being treated that way, they'd... Um, did struggle to go back. Oh, and I think a lot of them would not want to go back. I mean, yeah, we, they'll you know, go we, to Australia. Yeah. I, well, th- this is just, I don't know what the, the situation from a mandated, mandated um, situation is there, but I certainly know plenty who have gone to the UK, mm. um, you know, c- consultants and nurses because the mandates, you know, they were able to stop those mandates in the UK. I mean, heading back to the article, I love this. There were about 54,000 workers who, nurses working in New Zealand, some of them part-time. Last year, the estimated shortage was 4,000. Tafata Aura said they did not know what the current situation was. Now, that's interesting. That number is really interesting. Last year, the estimated shortage was 4,000. Now, mm. the there was the nurses group advocacy group for those who are unvaccinated now they had they said at least 700 nurses on their books who who had already indicated they were ready and willing to go back into work and that was about 12 months ago this is when they were really pushing these mandates so if you actually look at that and I think that the number is greater than that I know a number of nurses that took early retirement they just decided actually we don't need to put up with us anymore. We're going to retire early. But even at 700, you know, what's that? That's about 20, just shy of 20% mm-hmm. of that shortage number are nurses that were forced out. So it's enough to make a real difference to, to the healthcare system. Amazing. This is where, again, you, you, you'd hope that we're training doctors and nurses, but what we're up against is an education system that kids leave after 10 plus years unable to read and write. Mm. Um, and, and just reading this um, tidied up ministry of press release, um, Tinity said um, she said the Ministry of Education was seeking feedback from schools involved in the trial about what they needed to help their students to pass. Um, so not what not help these students to learn, help the students <laughs> help to Help the pass. students to learn to read, yeah. Uh, so, you know, do you want, uh, you know, what sort of nurses do you want looking after you? 
you'd yeah. think that being able to read and write was was uh, useful in terms of patient safety. But there you go. Well, the last article I've got just on now that we're on to the topic of language and the use of language, I thought this one was really interesting. It, it sort of tickled me only because we use this service. I, I'm with what was the Vodafone. So uh, Vodafone have rebranded. As of, yeah. I think, was it 1st of April was the magic date. Uh, Vodafone became 1NZ or 1 New Zealand. And Chief Executive Jason Parris says, despite the company's incorporate, incorporating Tadao into its communications, many customers have questioned the telco's use of it. So there's been apparently, I didn't realise, that there's been a little bit of a brouhaha around um, the fact that Vodafone went with the rebranding of One New Zealand because there was a faction within um, this that felt that the rebranding should have been Tahi Aotearoa. Mm. Doesn't quite roll off the tongue the same, just saying. <laughs> well, this is, this is another example of switching the politics is downstream from culture thing. You, you'd think in business, uh, you, you do what your customers want. Uh, if you read the various articles around this, that what they're saying is, well, you know, they didn't want it, but we're, we're working on them, uh, which is uh, good luck with that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I have to admit, I'm actually pleased that Vodafone went this way with 1NZ because it, A, it's from a brand perspective, you want a brand, I mean, having done a lot of work in marketing as I have, a brand needs to stick and resonate. 1NZ mm. is quick, it's simple, it's easy, it's snappy, it's it's there. And whereas Tahia Aotearoa, if you've got someone coming into the country, you want you know, it's one NZ is easy. NZ is known as New Zealand. That is what people know. Aotearoa is from a brand, and I know that they're madly trying to rename and rebrand this country as Aotearoa. But mm. you've got to look at the wider brand internationally, and it is not brand Aotearoa. It is brand New Zealand. It's it's going wow. to take a, you know, well, you know, how long is that going to, to last? And the, uh, I, I just, I feel that obviously they've done the focus groups, they've put the work in, they've gone out to the customer base, and this says to me that the customer base has told them quite clearly, this is the direction that we want you to head. And I don't know about you, but for me, what made me more excited was actually the announcement they made the following day which was the fact that they're going to have full coverage across all of New Zealand because they have signed up a deal yeah. with um, SpaceX and Starlink to actually improve the quality of service to their customers. Hello, there's a novel concept. You'd quality. have thought that would have been the story, wouldn't you? Um, yeah, well, you would have thought. You would have thought, but no. Uh, and especially in light of the, the recent cyclone, because here, I don't know whether you're aware, but when... Uh, after Gabrielle hit and we were all living in our powerless uh, device-free bubbles, which I have to say was quite nice right. um, in some respects, Vodafone was the one uh, that struggled. Actually, they mm. were the one that most coverage was lost and it was those customers that were most greatly affected. So I think they had that very, very much at the forefront of their mind that they knew that they'd lost a lot of ground with those customers here. So the fact that they are being service focused to provide a better quality of service, well, hello, I would have thought that that was where people needed to be, but there you go. 
So that is everything on my list. Anything else? Are you sure you're going to be okay not require further counselling for, <laughs> for reading the, the weekend newspaper? Well, it, it was it was interesting. There's a lot more. I mean, I looked at the, you know, talking about how the, the SpaceX uh, uh, provision of coverage was the story. There are there are about three stories uh, in the in brief section of the national news that could have led the paper. Um, uh, a woman who witnessed a Tesla go up in flames on the Auckland Harbour Harbour Bridge overnight said two onlookers who pulled the driver to safety moments before it exploded are heroes. You'd think there's a story there, but I guess it doesn't fit with um, the zero carbon by 2050. Uh, uh, agenda. Mm. Uh, there's a whole lot of uh, job losses in the Polytech uh, restructuring. Uh, Mount Egmont is no longer Mount Egmont. Uh, there, there are quite a number of stories that uh, just don't seem to fit with um, polishing up government press releases and sticking them in the paper. Well, this coming weekend, I will. I'll, I'll do some mahi, shall I? I'll do some mahi, and some I mahi. will. Oh, yeah, and I will pop myself out and uh, pick myself. Since I'm a wee bit further south, I'll put myself up the Dominion, shall I? And uh, well, yeah, I think, I <laughs> and mean, it's, wade in. The, the other interesting thing was four prime ministers uh, rating Jacinda Ardern. Obviously, the big news is going to be a valedictory speech uh, uh, next week, and so in anticipation of that, they had uh, John Key, Jim Bolger, and uh, Jeffrey Palmer, and Helen Clark evaluating her. And of course, Jeffrey Palmer and Helen Clark were unwavering in their praise. Jim Bolger did talk about her policy failure, her inability to explain what she meant with co-governance has meant we are going to be more divided on race than we have been for years and years and years. Valid point. Um, but um, yeah, I don't think we're quite ready to really uh, work out what she's done because, as you say, a lot there are a lot of if you follow overseas news, New Zealand and Canada are generally regarded as the high watermark of of this agenda to push neo-Marxism on the world. We're, we're, the, uh, we're the guinea pigs. Yeah, we sure are. If you, so we're going to have, as I said, there's always so much to talk about. We're going to talk about um, more stories next week. So I will, there you go. That is my commitment for next week. I'm going to buy the Dominion, the Weekend Dominion, and, and dive into that. Uh, but before we go, we're going to, if you've got, any comments, questions, or if you've come across a news article that you want us to talk about, inbox at realitycheck.radio is the place to send it. And uh, we've had some feedback, Marty, which is great news. People, yeah. Uh, yeah, it is really, really good news. Good feedback? Positive feedback, positive feedback. Rachel, I wish you wouldn't say ah and um so much. I'm working on that too. <laughs> That's my commitment. Rachel from Wellington says, so glad to see that you're on the radio talking about the woeful state of affairs in New Zealand. Well, I think we've just covered that, Rachel. Looking forward to and listening to you when I am alone, uh, which is great. Uh, Denise uh, is saying, thank you so much for your program. Oh, but she does want Rodney to speak louder, so that's that's always a good thing. And been listening this morning with the interviews, and I have to say this is epic. Big ups to Marie, you're the bomb. There we go, and the Reality Check team. So that's very, very nice. nice. Um, 
Oh, uh, this one is from Rick saying, you're right. Uh, you're right. The masks of Marama, which is what you and I talked about last week, the masks of Marama caught lying before she got demoted and Hipkins mainstream media, aka lamestream media, police have dropped down and they've been found wanting, not fit for purpose and should be removed um, as soon as possible. So thanks for that, Rick. And lastly on my list, um, great discussions, keep it going, great guest, informative, top quality. Uh, RCR's come along just at the right time to fill the void and is doing so brilliantly. I hope RCR keeps me informed. It gives me hope. And that is from Jeremy in Wales. So thank you, Jeremy. So there you go. So if you've got more... As I said, if you've got new stories, anything that we've talked about this morning, whether it be here with the media, with Marty and I, or across the show, drop us a line, inbox at realitycheck.radio. All right, my friend, same back time, same back channel next week, and uh, we'll see what else we can dig up in the wonderful world of media. Look forward to it. Thanks again, Marie, and uh, see you next week. Talk see to you next, next week. W- see you next week. <laughs> Bye now. This is Counterculture with Marie Buskey, Wednesdays at 10 a.m. on Reality Chick Radio.